Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Well, we're featuring three interesting stories on the show this week. First, we'll hear the end of a lecture about marijuana research that we featured on our last two episodes. Then we'll hear an update on what's going on in the world of spaceflight this month. For instance, you can hear about the former Department of Defense Administrator, who's now going to be in charge of human spaceflight at NASA. They're hoping to put a man and a woman on the moon by 2024. And we'll finish this week's episode with another contribution from our sister station in Tucson, Arizona, 91.3 FM. This is a great nonprofit community run radio station in Tucson called KXCI. It's a short interview we'll be featuring this month with a graduate student at the University of Arizona, the other Wildcats, and she's studying wastewater management and mining reclamation. But first, let's listen to the end of a lecture given by marijuana use expert Dr. Latrice Montgomery. Dr. Montgomery is assistant professor and clinical psychologist in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. And she gave it at the 2019 annual conference of the Kentucky Academy of Science that was held at Berea College back in November 1st and 2nd of 2019. If you want to hear the first parts of this lecture, go to our website, forwardradio.org slash benchtalk, to hear the podcast of December 2nd and December 9th, 2019. Now, one of the things that Dr. Montgomery is talking about in this section is the use of blunts when smoking marijuana. She defined that in last week's episode, but basically a blunt is a cigar that's had its inner tobacco removed. Of course, the surrounding tobacco leaf is still there, and the user ends up replacing the tobacco on the inside with marijuana, and then ends up smoking that. It might sound trivial, but it has huge impacts on the health of the individual smoking it. And she can tell you about that right here. Uh, One of the studies that I've um, recently completed is I kind of answer that question that I've been talking about, because again, joints is what people think of when they think of marijuana. They think smoking a joint. So I wanted to kind of prove the point that there's some differences here between blunts and joints, and we need to be aware of those. So um, recently I've looked at the kind of cannabis use characteristics and consequences among individuals who were seeking marijuana treatment. And so are there differences in people who use blunts and people who use joints when they come into treatment? So um, kind of the background for this uh, study was that, of course, as I mentioned, among past year marijuana users, 66% report smoking a blunt in the past year. So again, high rates of blunt use, and of those, 40% reported past month blunt, blunt use. Kind of as I've already alluded to, there's an increased likelihood of uh, nicotine and marijuana dependence among these users that has been found. But again, not much about the clinical profile of blunt versus joint users. So what are the characteristics of those individuals that are entering treatment? And what are the consequences? Are there any differences based on what the person is smoking? So what I did in this study, um, it was a secondary analysis of a multi-site clinical trial 
Um, and I wanted to look at the association between blunt and joint use frequency. So how many days of use in the past month upon them entering treatment and how that affects characteristics. So like the amount of marijuana that they smoke were their differences based on whether they were smoking a blunt or a joint and the consequences. So like the withdrawal symptoms that people experience. And there's been some controversy about you know, whether or not you can experience withdrawal symptoms from marijuana, but we've shown that you actually can. And I'll talk some about that. But basically, does it differ about blunt and joint users? So I use data from the National Institute on Drug Abuse Clinical Trials Network. And this is a network that I've actually been a part of since I was a graduate student. And it actually is filled with interdisciplinary folks who have all over the country who focus on addiction. And the idea is to link research with practice and making sure that the things that we research is actually reaching the clinics in which people are being treated in. And actually, um, this study that I was part of, it was is within six states, and one of them actually included Kentucky. There's different nodes, and so it's done in many different places to kind of get a, a kind of account for the fact that you know drug use and addiction differs across the country depending on where you are. There's different cultures, like different norms, different issues, and so we try to account for that when we put together these studies. And so one of the secondary analyses I did was um, a part of it was called the ascent trial. So this, this network is made up of several different trials. So if you think of the different treatments that are in addiction, they usually come through this network in terms of being able to assess what is the um, effect of the studies that we should be using, whether it be medications or behavioral trials. So this particular trial is actually a medication and behavioral trial. So inositocin or NAC is actually a treatment that is not FDA approved um, for cannabis, but there have been some positive signals for it in terms of people who are suffering from cannabis use disorder. And so this trial was designed to see if people receive NAC versus placebo, would they actually reduce their marijuana use? That was kind of what the design of the overall trial was. Um, and this is just very quickly, it, they were randomized to either, these are treatment-seeking adults between the ages of 18 and 50, they all entered treatment with a marijuana use disorder. And they were randomized to NAC or placebo, they received um, 12 weeks of either NAC or placebo plus contingency management, which is a popular behavioral treatment for addiction. And then um, they, you can see where they started medication, ended medication, and then onto post-treatment. So I'll show you this just to kind of give you an overview of what the study looked like. But the uh, research that I did, or the secondary analysis of this trial, actually just used baseline data. So um, right where people were randomized and before they were even randomized to treatment. So I really just was more so interested in who are the blunt users that are approaching treatment, who are the joint users that are approaching treatment, and are there any differences at that point? But as you might imagine, there are many different questions that could be answered along the way if you're looking at the entire trial. So very quickly, one of the things, the main finding that I found was that the number of days of blunt use significantly predicted several things. One is the average amount of marijuana use per day. So blunt users actually reported using more marijuana use per day. And part of the reason is they can actually, can actually fit more marijuana into a blunt. That's another reason why people are very attracted to blunts because you can fit more marijuana into it, and especially if they're in smoking sessions where people are more likely to smoke blunts in groups, so you have more to pass around. There is also um, estimated average cost of marijuana was much higher among blunt smokers. And again, purchasing more marijuana and also um, thinking about the kind of the potency levels and smoking in groups, all of these factors uh, play a role in why that might be the case. And also withdrawal symptoms. So some of the withdrawal symptoms is that those who had higher days of blunt use kind of have more physiological symptoms, like felt nauseous, 
more stomach aches, and not sleeping at night, and then even more mood swings within the past 24 hours when it came to treatment. So again, this has very important implications for treatment. So when I talk to providers about the research that I'm doing, I talk about studies like this to show that when blunt users come in, it's very important for us to, first of all, measure, not just you know say, did they use marijuana, yes, no, but actually ask, how did they consume it? And then asking very specifically what kind of withdrawal symptoms did they experience because that might impact the type of medication that they receive, the type of behavioral treatment that they receive, et cetera. Interestingly, these same associations were not found among individuals who smoke joints. And then another area uh, that I focus on is with uh, social media and co-use. And so I'll go over this um, very briefly. So I'm pretty sure, how many people in here have social media accounts of any kind? Almost everybody. So social media is extremely popular. And one of the reasons that I um, was very much attracted to this particular area was because I really needed to think about innovative ways to reach individuals who are using marijuana and tobacco and other areas of drugs. And so one of the things that, uh, in this area is that, that we do is actually look at tweets, for example. So one of the things you can do as it relates to research is actually study tweets in the same way that you would qualitative research. So if you think about bringing people into like a focus group or an individual interview and you ask questions and kind of look at the themes of what they're talking about and seeing, you know, are there common things to report on. It's the same kind of concept with social media, what we call big data. And so because of this type of research that I've done, I've been able to work with IT specialists, all different types of people to kind of think about how social media is actually used to study these areas. So this is one study in particular in which there were several different themes that came up where we may just put in, you know, search terms like marijuana or cannabis and see what we can find on Twitter. So what you'll kind of see here is just some wordles. So one of the things that comes up is product-related topics and brands. So I mentioned some of those earlier, but like the backwoods, the swisher sweets. So this kind of gives us an idea of what are people talking about online. Because again, if you think about you know marijuana use, especially because it's you know an illegal behavior, people are not as forthcoming when they like to come in and talk to me about you know their marijuana use because they're like, well, are you the police? What are you going to do with this data? Like, who are you? That kind of thing. There's always that hesitation. But the thing about social media is that these are non-directed, peer-to-peer exchanges that people are having freely online. And so part of it is kind of looking to see what is it that's being said on these, about these particular products and issues. Another area that comes up is co-use with marijuana. And so with this particular study, they looked specifically at little cigars and cigarillos. And so they found people were talking about you know, how they're using it with marijuana. So again, we know that it's not just about people using it for tobacco. They're also using it for marijuana. So uh, I won't go through all of these, but essentially this is the kind of the work that's being done in this area. And it actually drew the study that I'm working on right now, which I have a grant from the National Institute of Drug Abuse to actually develop and pilot test a Twitter-based intervention for young adult blunt smokers. And the idea is just based off of this very point, that these exchanges and conversations are happening online naturally anyway. And so why not join the conversation? And why not join it with some of the research without kind of presenting it in kind of a traditional article that people might not you know, kind of just throw to the side, but having more of a, a conversation with people. So essentially, very quickly, it's a 30-day intervention, private groups, so only those individuals who will be enrolled in the study will actually have access to the group. 
And it's based off of what people, um, young people that I talked to, what they really were interested in when you think about treatment. So for example, one, um, people say that they're using blunts because they're stressed out. So one of the things that I, topics and tweets that will go out is around stress management. So really helping people think through what are some effective ways in which they can manage their stress. And so the tweets that will be sent out, it will be automatically sent out every single day. Everyone in the group will be encouraged to tweet about the topic and to tweet with each other and about thinking about effective ways to cope that doesn't necessarily involve blankets. And so um, I'm actually in the process of designing the intervention now to kind of see how people respond to it, how many people will actually tweet, how many people um, will I be able to enroll. And of course, I mean, there's so many different questions and things that you could probably think of now as you're like thinking about the intervention and even like ethics and all that kind of stuff. Trust me, I've thought through it all. And it's, it's, it's a lot, I could go on and on about so many, so many of the different topics, but it's an exciting area and I'm happy if people want more information, I'm very happy. Um, there's been some studies that have used some interventions, but more so to kind of reduce studies like this, where they're just kind of looking at things, but there have been less studies on actual interventions. So this would be great to kind of contribute to that new area of knowledge. Um, the same thing with, you know, Instagram, which is more visual based. And so there's been some studies that looks at what are people visually putting on Instagram? How are there some people are teaching people, you know, how to use certain marijuana products and, you know, there's certain edibles. You see there's like cannabis chicken salad. I mean, people, you know, there's all kinds of things that are there. So, um, but again, the ideal of this is to kind of get a sense of what are people talking about? Where are some things that perhaps we can intervene on? And there are a lot of um, a lot of IT people that I work with that can kind of help develop algorithms to help us to identify pictures and um, helping us with different keywords and searches that we're supposed to use to be able to identify um, these kind of things that are online. The same thing with YouTube. You'll see some of that here um, where people are kind of just, you know, there are videos that people put out and they kind of talk about, you know, whatever it is related to marijuana, whether they're showing people products or talking about you know, the effectiveness or non-effectiveness of it. Um, one of the studies that I did, I called it Rolling and Scrolling. It's the um, portrayal of blunts on YouTube. And I did essentially kind of what I was just talking about where me and my research assistant, we worked together to look through YouTube videos to see what are people talking about when it, as it relates to blunts? What is the discussion? So as you might imagine, just very briefly there, first of all, it was a lot of views, much more than um, even some of the alcohol and cigarette literature where you would think that there might be more conversation. There was a lot of focus on blunts. But many of them really talk, focus more so on user sharing. They focus more so on talking about, you know, here's how you use the product, introducing people to the product, but less on health effects less on, you know, some of the things that I talked about before about exposure to nicotine, etc. So as you might imagine, in my mind, kind of one of the next projects and things that I'm thinking about is this whole idea of using YouTube to, again, promote and help us think about um, either the reduction of blunt use or educating people about blunt use so that they can make the decision that they feel is best for them. Because as of now, there aren't really many videos that do that. So as a clinical psychologist, I always kind of think about, you know, clinically, what does my research mean and what if I'm, you know, in the room talking to psychologists in particular and anyone who's really in the treatment or prevention of addiction, what does all of this mean? And so I've talked some about it, so I won't go into too much detail, but really this idea of needing to focus on um, both marijuana and tobacco, there are some pretty effective treatments that have been found, especially with tobacco. 
And so the notion is to kind of combine some of those treatments together and see if they work on both marijuana and tobacco. One of the debates that's going on right now is should you target them both simultaneously or sequentially? Because one of the arguments is that when people are coming into treatment, let's say for marijuana, they're like, just allow people to go through that treatment. And then next, let's do tobacco. Whereas some people are in the camp of let's focus on those two drugs together because with the idea that the decreasing one will also contribute to the decreasing others. And again, this is an ongoing debate. There's been a few studies in this area, but nothing definitive. But um, there's a trend towards treating them both um, at the same time. We'll see how that continues to, to go along. And some of this I've already mentioned. I'm just about making sure that um, we're continuing to assess and assess in the correct way, asking the right questions in our measurements, in our surveys, making sure that, um, you know, in marijuana treatment settings, we're asking about tobacco, and in tobacco settings, we're asking about marijuana. And it's the point that I raised earlier is that we're finding that actually tobacco use among marijuana users is kind of presenting this more severe clinical profile. So making sure that we're aware of that and thinking about where our interventions might be most effective and in which setting. So take home message, I know I said a lot, but take home message is marijuana and tobacco co-use is highly prevalent. There are a lot of many different issues with marijuana and tobacco individually, but even more so together. There are several mechanisms that promote its use and that we might think about ways to treat it simultaneously. But really the big message is that more research is needed in this area and it's, uh, hopefully I've tried to demonstrate that it's not just, you know, psychologists or not just physicians. Or not, it's, we need so many different eyes on this issue. There's policy issues, public health implications, and then hopefully there's so many more opportunities for you all to get involved and for other people to get involved in this fight to end addiction. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. That was Dr. Latrice Montgomery, a faculty member in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. And she was talking about her research on marijuana and tobacco. And like I said, go to forwardradio.org slash bench talk to hear the first part of this talk. Well, now let's go from tobacco to NASA and hear the latest news from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. This is just a four-minute synopsis of their news from space, covering the first week of December 2019. A new cooling system for a device on the space station, first results from the first spacecraft to touch the sun, and preparing Orion for some critical testing. A few of the stories to tell you about this week at NASA. On December 2nd, our Andrew Morgan and the European Space Agency's Luca Parmitano conducted the third in a series of spacewalks outside the International Space Station to refurbish the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, or AMS, a cosmic particle detector. The astronauts installed a new cooling system for the AMS, which was then successfully powered up by the control team on Earth. Data gathered from our Parker Solar Probe during two unprecedented and record-breaking close flybys of our Sun are being shared for the first time in four scientific papers featured in the journal Nature. The spacecraft's super-close proximity to the Sun, some 15 million miles away at the time, helped reveal new insights into processes that affect the solar wind, the dust located extremely close to the Sun's corona, and the acceleration events of solar energetic particles, which are so small they are undetectable from our vantage point nearly 93 million miles from the Sun. 
This information will be vital to protecting astronauts and technology in space, an important part of NASA's Artemis program, which will send the first woman and the next man to the moon by 2024 and eventually on to Mars. The Orion spacecraft that will make a round trip to the moon and back on our Artemis 1 test flight with no astronauts on board is at our Plum Brook station in Sandusky, Ohio. Plum Brook houses the largest and most powerful space environment simulation facilities in the world. Orion will undergo a four-month test campaign while there to subject the spacecraft to the vacuum, extreme temperatures, and electromagnetic environment it will experience during Artemis 1. During a December 3rd agency-wide town hall at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., Administrator Jim Bridenstine introduced the agency's new Associate Administrator for Human Exploration and Operations, Douglas Lavero. Finding somebody with this very unique skill set um, that could fit this role uh, took a bit of time, but I do believe that we have found the right person in, in Doug Lavero. Lavero spent three decades in the Department of Defense and the National Reconnaissance Office developing, managing, and establishing national policy for the full range of national security space activities. Most recently, from 2013 to 2017, he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy. My job is to support the people who work for me, um, to go ahead and make sure they have the tools they need, whether it's turning a bolt or creating a contract or whatever the tool it is. And, and my job as the leader is to support them in that. One, zero. On December 5th, our commercial cargo provider SpaceX launched its Dragon spacecraft from Florida's Cape Canaveral Air Force Station with a variety of cutting-edge scientific experiments for the International Space Station. These include an investigation studying the process of malting barley in microgravity, a high-resolution imaging suite capable of specifically identifying materials on Earth's surface, whether they be soil, rocks, vegetation, or human-made, and an external stowage unit where remote-controlled robots, capable of detecting leaks outside the station, can cool their heels until they are called into service. A Russian Progress cargo ship lifted off from Kazakhstan on December 6th with almost three tons of food, fuel, and supplies for the space station. We and our partners have supported humans living and working aboard the station for more than 19 years. The station remains the sole space-based proving ground and stepping stone for achieving the goals of our Artemis program, which will land the first woman and next man on the moon in 2024. That's what's up this week at NASA. For more on these and other stories, follow us on the web at nasa.gov slash talk. That was This Week at NASA, a public domain news clip that covered the week of December 6, 2019. Well, it's time to shift gears once again from studying outer space to studying environmental chemistry right here on the good old Earth. It was back on September 2, 2019, that we broadcast our first installment of Thesis Thursday that was originally played from our sister station in Tucson, Arizona, KXCI 91.3 FM. One of the things we try to do on our show is put a human face on science, and that's exactly what Thesis Thursday does, too. This show features an interview every week with a top undergraduate or graduate scientist who's conducting research somewhere at the University of Arizona in Tucson, which happens to be my alma mater. This week's interview is with Itzel Marquez Hernandez, a PhD student in chemical engineering at U of A. 
She holds a bachelor's and master's degree in chemical engineering from Mexico. She started off in the pharmaceutical sciences and in the oil industry, but found herself more interested in environmental science. So she received a scholarship from the Mexican government to study at Arizona. But I'll let her describe what she's actually doing. Now, this interview is being conducted by Dr. Monica Ramirez Andriata. She's assistant professor of environmental science at U of A. Here is her Thesis Thursday interview with Ms. Hernandez that was originally broadcast on KXCI on September 25th, 2018. Hello and good day. Welcome to KXCI's Thesis Thursdays. My name is Monica Ramirez Andriata, and I'm in the Department of Soil, Water, and Environmental Science at the University of Arizona. Today, I am honored to have Itzel Marquez talk about her PhD program at the University of Arizona. So Itzel, talk to me about your program. I am a PhD student at the University of Arizona in Chemical Engineering, the Department of Chemical and Environmental Engineering. Who are your advisors? I have two advisors. One is Dr. Saez and the other one is Dr. Betterton. Talk about your lab and the research you're working on. Right now I'm working in two different research projects. One is related with wastewater treatment for potable reuse. So we are interested in understanding the degradation mechanisms of what we call trace organic contaminants which are these organic molecules that are present in wastewater in very small concentrations, but even at those small concentrations, they can be harmful for the environment and for human beings. So essentially ensuring that wastewater could be recycled and reused for drinking water. Exactly. So if we want to use it for drinking purposes, we want to make sure we're cleaning it appropriately. We're developing mathematical models to predict the degradation of these contaminants in different situations. Awesome. So that's research project one. That is one. And the other one is related to the use of vegetation to control the transport of mine tailings. Okay. So we are using computational fluid dynamics to determine how effective is vegetation to Uh, sediment those particles. Mine tailings are the residues that we get from different mines. We want to make sure if we are uh, stopping these particles from flying around so that population is exposed to them because they can be very toxic. You're looking at how plants can hold these uh, mine tailings, which are almost flower-like, right? And they're very easily movable by wind and water. So if plant roots can hold that down, right, we can reduce the amount of that dust and those particles that might have, what kind of things are we worried about in those? Things like lead, like cadmium, and arsenic, very, very toxic metals that are present in these tailings. And yeah, and so you're doing, say it again, computational? Computational fluid dynamics, which is like using a software to predict how these particles are moving in different types of environments. So if we select one type of canopy, how the particles are going to move if we select another one so to try to find the best option. Yeah. To- so why are you doing this degree? It's a, what do you hope? What are your what are you passionate about? What are your professional goals? While I was doing my master's degree, I started working with wastewater and then I realized I was really passionate about water and about science and also about teaching because I was also teaching. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to keep working on research and I knew it, I wanted it to be wastewater And I also knew that I wanted to be a professor. So in order to do that, I started looking professionally in that direction. And that is how I decided to pursue a PhD degree. Well, you're definitely on the right track and you're doing outstanding work. And I know that you're working very hard. So 
We're very excited that you're at the University of Arizona, and we look forward to you becoming a professor of the future. You know, so when you're doing these fluid mechanic models and, uh, you know, running your essentially mathematical models, what are you listening to? What's your favorite band or favorite song? I think I have many favorite bands, but I just recently discovered like two weeks ago a Mexican duet that is called Silvia y Carmen. Ah, okay. And uh, they have nice songs, and I think my favorite song from them is called Me Regalas Un Ratito. Thank you so much. It's a, we look forward to seeing your ongoing accomplishments in the field. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. That was an interview with Itzel Marquez Hernandez, who is working on her doctorate in chemical engineering at the University of Arizona. Thanks to Dr. Ramirez Andreata at U of A and Bridget Thum of KXCI 91.3 FM in Tucson for letting us listen to this interview. We community radio stations need to stick together, so I recommend you check out KXCI. Just go to kxci.org on the web or check out our SoundCloud page We'll post a link to that radio station there, too. Happy holidays from all of us at Bench Talk, the week in science.